All right, welcome back to the Verified Athletics Podcast. We got a special double header today, so we're going to jump right into it. First, we're going to check back in with Dylan Maven, a cornerback for the Oakland Raiders. He is in camp and uh, getting after it. He's got his first preseason game coming up this weekend. They're showing him and his teammates on Hard Knocks on HBO. And after that, we'll check in with our guest for today, who is Grant Parr. He is a sports psychologist and author of Next One Up. And you guys will really love that too. So this is going to be a great episode. Here we go. All right, everyone, we got Dylan Maven back on the podcast. What's up, Dylan? Uh, not much. Just uh, glad to have, glad to be back. So you're. Uh, how long have you been at camp now? Now you guys are uh, with the Raiders, and and uh, how many practices have you had so far? How long have you been sitting there? Um, I've been here since about July twenty second, twenty third. Uh, the rookies were here f- about three days earlier, so we've gotten a few more practices. But you know, we're a little, little over a week and a half or so in. So you know, we've gotten about six practices, six or seven practices in so far. How many rookies do you guys have? Um, I think about sixteen to twenty, because they drafted I think six or seven, and then we had about ten, ten or eleven uh, undrafted free agents, so around there. Okay. And so is it possible to have like a real practice with just the 16 or 17 you guys or they just like make it work? (laughs) It wasn't like a real like practice. Like we didn't go 11 on 11 type stuff, but we did like individual and um, we had like walkthrough periods and things like that. No competitive period, no competitive periods at that point. But so it's mostly just focused on learning the playbook basically. Yeah, that and then we did we did have like individual periods that were full speed, just getting like technique things down, but nothing uh, eleven on eleven or seven on seven or nothing like that. You get to do some one on ones though. Um, uh, once the veterans got here, we started doing one on ones. Gotcha. So you didn't do that just like with the other receivers and the quarterbacks or anything like that. No, no, no. Are there any rookie quarterbacks on the team? Nope. It's just the uh, the three vets. Okay. So um. So I actually, uh, I didn't realize this last time we talked, but they're filming Hard Knocks there with the Raiders this year. Yeah, they are. They what, are. What's that like? Um, it's definitely different because, you know, they're pretty much everywhere. Um, they mic pe- different people up. Like, I'm actually going to be mic'd up tomorrow. I just found out. So, I mean, they're micing everybody up and they're in meetings and they're you're, you're getting a haircut. You know, they're there. You know, they're trying to get everything. So it's just been a little different, but you just pr- try to act like they're not even there, to be honest. Is that easy to do? Um, at, for some people it is. For some people it isn't. You know, I've always been good at, you know, tuning outside things out. So it's not that hard for me. But I could see how it could be a distraction to some people. Yeah. So when they're um, out recording, do they like sit you down and like have you do like little conversations and interview you? Or is it really just trying to cap for the moment? Uh, so at least from my experience, it's just been about capturing the moment. Uh, I'm sure they do do that with, you know, probably some some of the higher up people on our team. But just as from what I've seen, it's been more so just capture the moment, you know, raw, uncut footage type things. And does like the team have every, anything that they're trying to hold back or trying to make sure like do they give you guys any sort of talk about about how to handle yourselves around the camera or what you guys can and can't say? I mean, I imagine you guys aren't really into game planning yet, but you guys are putting in schemes and you're, you guys are like showing a lot of things. Like, are they worried about that? Are they, the coaches, like, are they paranoid about any of that stuff? No. Um, I know our defensive coordinator, he was with the uh, Bengals. He said he's been through this whole hard knocks experience. I mean, they, they do videotape everything, but they're not going to put anything like specific out there. So they're not too worried about that. We never had an official talk about, you know, you can say this, can't say that. They really just said, you know, just be yourself and just don't make us look bad, basically. I bet it's like, be yourself, except for like this person. You, you should act like someone else. Act like Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure for some people, they probably had a specific talk, but you know, not with me. Yeah, so uh, six or seven practices you said are in in the books. How, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you playing? Uh, I feel a lot better than I did in the uh, than the OTA period. You know, the playbook is really starting to come together. You know, the game it's still fast, but you know it's starting to slow down. And uh, I feel a lot like I'm gaining confidence as we uh, continue to get through these practices. You know, I hope that just carries into the preseason. Do you, do you get to take a lot of snaps or is it kind of like you get a, a snap here or there, like a freshman on a college football team? 
Um, it's definitely I definitely do get less reps than, you know, the starters and things like that. But, you know, they do a good job of delegating the reps um, better than I thought, at least. You know, I get a solid amount of reps every day enough to, you know, so they can evaluate me. So that's really all I can ask for. So I know in college it's like ones versus ones and then twos versus twos and then like a couple of snaps, threes versus threes or something like that. And, and then you have to divvy up the reps. Is, are you running with a unit? Is that how it is that how it works? I imagine with the NFL it's a little trickier, but I, I'm not really sure how it, how it works. What's, what's the what's the story there? Uh, as far as the defense, I mean, they, we do have like set starters, but I mean, once you get to, once you get farther, um, down the line, it's pretty much, um, like, like on a rotation basis. And as far as going against like the offense, they actually rotate every play. So you're going against a different group of receivers or running backs, you know, every single play. So one play I could be matched up against a rookie. The next I could be matched up against like a Tyrell Williams or Antonio Brown. So I like, I kind of like that. Yeah, what's the? If you, is it noticeable the difference, or does it just feel different when you're when you're lining up? Um, as far as like the the receivers I'm going against. Yeah, like when you're up against like you know veterans that that like all pro type guys that have just been around for a long time and and you know have torched the NFL, you know, versus guys that are pretty new that are that probably feel in a similar situation as you are, just getting the hang of it. Um, there are definitely differences, you know. Everybody at this level is, you know, athletically gifted. So it's not even as much as the speed. It's just more so like uh, savvy techniques that these vets do that, like, I don't even notice like things with their hips or setting up their routes, you know, things like that, that I'm starting to pick up on now. But, you know, originally I'm, I was, I was ignorant to it. And, you know, they're really starting to open my eyes to that, like the veterans. And I mean, the rookies are doing it too. They're starting to learn too. So everybody's getting better. And uh, is there any experience that feels like someone takes you under their wing? Like there's a whole group of defensive backs. I'm sure that you're in meetings rooms with and stuff like that. Do you like, do you end up like bonding with some of the older guys and, or is it, I, I've talked to other guys before and it's, it hasn't really sounded like that's how it works, but I'm curious what your experience has been. Uh, I have heard those stories about, you know, veterans kind of leaving the rookies out to dry, but I can honestly say with our defensive back room, you know, everybody's been helpful and accepting and, there hasn't been any type of like hazing or nothing like that to the point where I would feel uncomfortable and they do a good job of helping you when you have a question or taking you under their wing. You know, I've had, I can't even just name one person because, you know, it's pretty much everybody that's really offering their help and guidance. And then uh, last time we talked, it sounded like special teams was going to be a big deal for you and in your effort to make the team and, and um, you know, get on the field. Any sense of how that's going? Oh, I think it's going good. You know, the coach, he's been telling me I've been uh, doing well lately. Um, at least for me, I know that's one of the most important parts of practice just because the fact that I am a rookie, so I'm going to get less reps when it comes to, like, team periods and seven-on-seven. Seven. I know I'm going to get the reps in the uh, special teams drills, so I got to go 110%, give everything I got because I'm going to have a little extra energy. So use that to my advantage. But, you know, so far, I think it's been going good. And so what positions are you playing on all the different special teams? Or where, where do they have you lining up? Uh, I mean, I'm, they got me at uh, gunner, uh, the corner that guards the gunner, um, kickoff, kickoff return, and like the front line type thing. So, you know, I'm pretty much, uh, uh, pretty much trying to go anywhere I can, to be honest. They don't have you quite on uh, the field goal unit yet, though? <laughs> no, no, you know, I'll, if they ask me to, I'll go out there, but you know, I don't think they'll need me for that. Yeah, they'll just uh, line you back up there, last one there, snap the football, <laughs> and you just got to kick it, get it through the uprights, right? right? <laughs> I, I could do it. I'm telling you. <laughs> do they? Do they? Uh, do they do ever do it like we do in college, where they end practice with like the kicker going for like a 55 or a 60 yard field goal, and if they make it, everyone celebrates and like they get something off. Do they do shit like that in uh, in the pros? Um. They don't, as far as like field goals, they haven't yet. Uh, I know one thing during the rookie, when the rookie camp was here, our center was having some trouble. Uh, apparently he was having some trouble like getting the snap down. And I remember coach brought us all at the end of practice. He said, all right, he's got to get like five perfect snaps in a row or we're starting the whole practice over. So everybody was all hype and screaming and all that. So that was, it kind of reminded me of uh, college a little bit in that aspect. So, so far, what feels different between this camp and just like a normal college camp that you've been in for the last four years? Um, believe it or not, the meetings. Um, I know in college we had a lot of meetings, but this is on a completely different level. I mean, we're meeting, we're having like four meetings a day type things. And 
I thought in college we had a lot of meetings, but it's nothing like this. And they're intense meetings too. Like you can't you can't be drifting off or just daydreaming. Like you got to be in tune and focus. I have to say, I don't think I've ever made it through an entire uh, camp where there hasn't been one player that's fallen asleep in a meeting. Has <laughs> that happened yet with the Raiders? Um, I'm not gonna say it, it's happened, but I'm not gonna say it hasn't happened. You know. <laughs> Some people do tend to get a little a little droopy eyed, but you know, just just one of those. That's how it goes. Just one of those things where their head starts to fall forward, their chin starts to hit their chest, mm-hmm. and as soon as the chin starts to touch the chest, they like snap their snap head back and, and get their eyes open. <laughs> like I wasn't sleeping. Who was sleeping? One of, the, yeah, one of those deals. Not, yeah, I try not. I try not to let that happen to me. <laughs> just gotta. You gotta like um, talk about performance enhancing drugs. You just gotta take some caffeine right before all your meetings in order to stay awake. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you got to do something sunflower seeds candy you got to do something yeah I, I feel like you weren't the type to be falling asleep in meetings though. do you do you um no. am i just not remembering all that well no nah, i mean the only time i think in college would maybe be during a special teams meeting like here and there but i would never actually fall asleep i would just get a little a little heavy eyed definitely not the fir- I, I, de- definitely not the first year when i was a special teams coordinator i'm sure probably nah, probably the other nah. years right Nah, this is the other years. <laughs> year, I was trying to get on the field, so I was I was locked in. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. Especially once you become a starter, I feel like um, it becomes a little bit tougher to to take special teams as seriously. Now, some guys they, they definitely still have that in them, and they want to be as good as they can for every snap that they can. And and if you're at a Fordham and you want to play in you know in the NFL, you know, getting that special teams film can be pretty important for you. So so some guys definitely still take it seriously um where do they put you guys up are you guys on a college campus or what's what's your setup um we're actually in a we stay in a hotel and it's actually really neat because i don't i don't know i don't think a lot of nfl teams do it like that because we're in a hotel and then like the, the practice facility is like literally right outside the hotel so and all the meeting rooms are in the hotel so like right now like i'm in i'm in a meeting room and my room is literally like two flights upstairs so everything's really close and compact, and I actually really like that setup. How close are you guys? To, is this like the true Oakland Raiders practice facility, or is this just a special spot they got for the summer? Oh yeah, uh, we're in uh, Napa Valley, so we're like an hour, hour or so out of uh, out of Oakland. So it's like their own uh, practice facility, but it's not like within Oakland though. But is is it the one that they use during the season, or is it just the one they use during camp? Oh no, it's just for camp. It's just for camp. Yeah, because I, I know most schools. Most uh, colleges, go, or excuse me, most NFL teams go somewhere else for, for the summer camp. And I feel like a lot of them go, you at least used to go to college campuses, but maybe less so now. Yeah, I mean, I have noticed that, and I've spoken to a few people that do do that. But, uh, I mean, I'm thankful to be in a hotel. I mean, I come back to the room and housekeeping, got the bed made all nice and fresh towels and all that. So I, after practice, I just go back to my room and shower. I don't have to even just shower in the locker room. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely blessed in that capacity. <laughs> Do they, uh, they don't have you sharing a room with anyone or, or are you on your own or how's that set up? Um, I have a roommate. I think if you're, I forget what the age cut out. It's like if you have seven years, if you're seven years or more, then you get like a single. If you're under that, then you have a roommate. So uh, that's like being an NFL adult or something like that? Yeah, it's something, it's something like that. So, I mean, I expected to have a roommate, so I wasn't like shocked or anything. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's like it's probably good just um, to have the company and like to – because otherwise it could maybe feel isolating, you know, depending on your personality. You know, it could be harder to, to feel connected. Yeah, it's definitely good. I mean, me and my roommate, uh, Isaiah Johnson, he's like a great guy. So we, we bonded instantly and connected instantly. And I'm actually glad to really have him, you know. It's always good to have somebody in your corner during these type of this type of this time of year. So is he a rookie too? Yeah, he's a rookie corner. He was drafted uh out of Houston. Okay. And uh what round was he drafted in? Uh, I think the fourth. I wanna I wanna say the fourth. Nice. So you're like kinda competing against each other or working with each other all on the field and then you guys get to go out and hang out afterwards. It's pretty fun. Yeah, huh? pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Nice. Uh, what what do you guys do for fun when you guys aren't in meetings or on the field? Or it's, like you said, today's your day off. Um, I know he he when I, before I came down here, he was up there playing Fortnite. So <laughs> we just do thing. We do Fortnite. Um, watch uh, TV shows. Um, you, there's there's some stores around here. If we get like free time, we go to uh, the store and check out that. So you know, we uh we take advantage of our time. Cool. Well, um, 
we're recording this. It's Monday night. I think tomorrow night, Tuesday, is going to be the first episode of Hard Knocks, but I imagine we won't actually air this podcast until a little bit after it's out. What jersey number should I be looking for out there to uh, to spot you? <laughs> I look for number 37. Cool. All right. Well, Dylan, thanks for uh, checking in with us, and we'll do this again in a couple of weeks. And when's your first preseason game? Um, This upcoming Saturday. So nice. I think it's the 10th. Nice. Any uh, sense August. on whether or not you're getting on the field, or is it too early to say? Um, I mean, the way they're talking, they're saying uh, they're going to take it easy on the starter. So I should get that. I should definitely get some time, you know, hopefully. Well, sweet. Well, we'll be watching. Definitely. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dylan. Talk to you later. All right. Watch Dylan this Saturday, number 37, uh, Oakland Raiders versus the Rams, I think. We'll be rooting for you. Okay. Next up, we have Grant Parr. He is an author. He is a host of a podcast, Game Face Performance. He wrote Next One Up. He's a former college football player, played junior college and at the Division II level. And he's a sports psychologist, and he's got a lot of great insight uh, dealing with all the things that he's dealt with through his life. And he's got a great story and a great message, and I'm sure you guys will love him. So here we go. Okay, we got Grant Parr on the podcast. Grant, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm good. I, you know, Thanks for... Uh, spending some time with me today. I know you got this really interesting story about how you got to where you are now. You're being a, you know, mental performance coach for athletes and, and, uh, writing your new book. So why don't you just take me on your journey a little bit? How'd you end up, you know, where you're at today? You know, I played football for about 13 years. I was a quarterback and, uh, and I played at the D2 level and going into actually in junior college, I got a little bit of a I got hit. I got hit in the hip and um, and played through it. And by my end of my junior year, I ended up getting a, a compressed fracture in my left hip. And so I was forced to to leave the game that I loved and was pretty, pretty upset and frustrated about that and started not to like the game anymore. And and what that did is it slowly started to take me away from my, my identity as a quarterback, as an athlete, as a competitor. And I spent about two decades of dealing with this with this injury and and how it just destroyed my identity and my spirit and so um long story short i've had two hip replacements on the same hip before i was 40 and when i went through my after my first surgery i ended up getting uh this bone that was growing in my hip and it grew six inches long and four inches wide and it, uh, it essentially, after about six months of my first surgery, I was put into the state of being called handicapped because uh, they didn't know how long, they didn't know if this was going to be fixed. There's only less than 1% that this has ever happened to. So um, I was told that I got to be okay with walking um, abnormally for the rest of my life and they don't know if they can fix it. So going through about four years of not clipping my toenails, not uh, tying my shoe, um, there's a lot of my spine was turning in three spots because the way I was overcompensating my walk, it was um, it was tough. It was very dark. So uh, I ended up actually a doctor came up to my other doctor and said, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to take it out. We need to put some radiation in it. And then hopefully that bone doesn't come back. So long story short, I got prepared for that for that uh, surgery. I mean, got into meditation, got into breathing work, gratitude work. And then I, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you that the moment that I got out of that surgery, I literally said out loud, I'm back. And when you spend almost two decades losing who you are, uh, just being a dark hole, that moment was so special to me. And I would say about two weeks after that uh, surgery, I ended up uh, started doing squats, started jogging, and I was like, I got my life back. So at that moment, I, I literally looked at myself and said, I need to redesign who I am and I need to do something different. So I actually did some discovery for about a year. And uh, and then one day when I was just kind of being open to other opportunities, because I was a sales uh, professional for about 17 years in corporate America, I was uh, I was sitting there listening to ESPN and I was listening to Desmond Howard talk about a sports psychologist. I'm like, what is that? What's a sports psychologist, right? So he ended up... Uh, talking more about his his experience and I went home and I just started researching it I, I didn't realize that there were so many of them out there but it was still kind of a new concept and a new field and uh within two months of that moment I, I was enrolled at JFK University and I was um so I got my master's in in sports psychology and ever since then here I am this is the reason why I'm, I'm here 
Well, that's uh, that's totally like a turnaround story. Um, I'd love to like learn a little bit more about that dark period. I think, I think it's so relatable for a lot of athletes, and you're probably is like uh, like one of the more extreme versions of it. Uh, but I think all athletes have that experience where they're they're out of sports, you know, sometimes due to injury and sometimes because the ball deflates because no one wants them to play anymore. You know, they graduate right. college or they finish high school and, and uh, you know, there's just no there's no step forward in their in their athletic career and they're turning their attention to something else. And, you know, and I, you know, I've had guests on this podcast that played in the NFL and, you know, the ball deflates for them, too. And uh, eventually, you know, you're just not playing football anymore. And I think most athletes experience some darkness there that you touched on and and um I think compounded with that, you know, injuries in your case, you know, a significant one. Um, can you like, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably um, not yet in that phase of their life and that that is coming. Um, so like what what was that like? Like, how could you describe that better? Well, the, the dark moment was interesting because I was living a kind of a dark long moment from the moment that I left the game. So the first uh, 15 years or so, I had to, I had to deal with um, just not walking right. I was had a hitch in my step. I had people um, making fun of my walk. You know, here I am, you know, I'm always the guy. My whole life I've been the guy, been the quarterback, been the leader. Everyone looked up to me. Um, it was just, it was a really different space to be in where people are making fun of you because no one ever made fun of me. I mean, I was the quarterback, right? And and I always led by example, and I started to deteriorate as I started living my life, and I started to listen to all that stuff. Like, I really did. I started to listen, like, I'm not normal. I'm never going to be what I used to be. And it just started to crumble me. And as I dealt with that for about 15 years, and then I went into my first surgery, and then they told me I, I would probably never walk again straight, never do the things that I would, you know, play basketball, play, you know, flag football, anything. I was like, this sucks. This really sucks. And I started to get into that victim mindset, started to resort into checking out, you know, started to drink, started to smoke um, marijuana. I started just doing a lot of that because I was like, well, why not? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect again. And it was like, wow, it was about being perfect right? And now I teach a lot about it's progress over perfection. And, and you know what, it takes a long, it takes some people longer to get it. But the, the moment that I was on rock bottom, like I really was, it was probably about three years into that four year darkness. My wife was like, she sat me down. She's like, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go up to the mountain and go uh, snowboarding. And I never snowboard, but I'm looking at her like, I can barely walk like and I was getting I was frustrated and I was pissed. I'm like, why would you even bring that up? Like is any time that you want to talk about sports or being an athlete or the records that I broke or the, the touchdown that I threw, man, I wasn't having it because it, it wasn't who I was anymore. So she like rocked my world that morning. It was a Saturday morning. And when I got upset and said, how, how dare you ask me to go to the mountain and be an athlete right now because I can't do that. And she's like, listen, are you going to be like when you turn 60, 65 and you're walking up the stairs and you trip and you break your hip, is that the way that you want to hurt your hip? Or do you want to actually go up into that, to that mountain and be the athlete that you are, tap into that athlete and go and go be an athlete again? And if you hurt it, you're hurting it being an athlete. I'm looking at her going, well, I spent the last two decades not being an athlete. Like, but maybe I can be an athlete, you know, maybe I can do it. And it hurt. Like it really did. My hip hurt. But I went up there and I did it. I went down there, a couple slopes with her after about four hours of, you know, being trained and uh, taking some lessons. And that that kind of shook me a little bit. I'm like, you know what? You know what? This dark spot. I'll tell you what, what I learned is that I thought since my left hip was damaged, so is the rest of my body. So I gave up on it. So then when I realized I have a, another great leg that's strong, torso, my heart, my shoulders, my head, I'm like, I got to start working that. And once I started working everything around it, that's when things started to kind of fall in place. It sounds like like a bit of an identity crisis in a way. It's like you had it set yourself up to be a certain type of person in your mind and you grew up being that person. And then you're a 20 whatever year old person that that is formed in that way. And then when you kind of like pull that rug out from underneath you and, and you just don't have that 
peace in your life anymore. It's almost like you can't just like continue on as the 20 something year old that you are, but just without that one piece, it's almost like you got to like tumble back down and grow right back up again and like learn how to be a different type of adult and like with a new identity. Um, and it's probably like, it probably is not as true as it feels in that moment. Like you probably can become like a very similar person with like a small, you know, difference about you, but it, it probably just doesn't feel that way. And it's hard to bridge that, that gap from who you thought you were to who you really could become. And you almost have to dip back down. Is that how it feels? Yeah, it does. And and I know that you and I were talking about this before we were recording that once I started to realize that I wasn't who I was anymore, that my life became very narrow in the things that I, I was looking at, the way I was looking at myself, looking at the, the things that I can accomplish in my life, I was playing a very small game. And as I learned over a couple of decades is that when I got my, my body back and I got my mind, I got my heart back and my spirit, I was like, man, I'm going to go play a big game. And, and it's the evolution of having like starting that, like that commitment of like, man, this, I want to do something big and I want to be in service and I want to like, I want to just, I want to rock my life. And so doing this, being a mental performance coach, you know, having my own podcast, having my own book that I just wrote a couple months ago, it's, I never even thought I could ever do this. Like I never even thought that I'd, I would go back to school and get my master's, you know, and, and to be honest with you, like some of my negative belief systems, I mean, one of them, and I'll be vulnerable on your show. One of them was that I, I for years, like years I thought I wasn't smart enough. Like I wasn't smart enough. And it, like stuff would come up. I'm not smart enough. And man, you know this. Uh, playing quarterback is one of the hardest positions in sports, period. And here I am. I played that for 13 years. And I've had this little gremlin on my shoulder telling me that I'm not smart enough. And so when I got rid of that, like I got rid of that that mindset, man, I've created more space for my life. And, and I'm just – I feel like I'm on fire with my career and what I'm doing with people. Uh, yeah, so that that gave me a lot of different questions. Uh, I can't skip over it. You know, you thought that you weren't smart enough. What what is it that you thought tricked you into feeling that way? Well, I think it all went back to academics. You know, I I, I was a guy. I was disciplined more than anybody. So I would I would never I would go to school. I've never cut class. I've never missed assignment. But that doesn't mean that my assignments had quality behind it. I was you know I was one of those guys that I just show up and I would show up and I know I would pass, but. I was okay with getting C's, right? And that, um, and then when I got a D, it was like, eh, you know, my, my bar was so low, it was a C. It was never an A because I never thought I could. And if I did for whatever reason, it was like, it was like a celebration, right? But it was never my goal to get an A. Well, which was really funny when I went back to school uh, at the age of 40 with my master's program, when I first started getting A's at, like for the first time in my life, I was like, it was contagious. I was like, I want this. And when I got a B, like I was pissed. I'd come home and my wife's like, did you get a B? Cause you know, like my schedule, I'm like I did. And she's like, well, so what'd you learn from it? So then I learned from it and, and let it go and move on. But it was so funny how I shifted, how that was one thing I, if I can go back, if I could really believe in myself, really like really, really trust myself, um, and, and raise the bar a little bit with my academics. I think that whole, like, uh, am I smart enough? I just lived in that probably when junior high and on it was kind of like when it developed. So what was the, what was the thing that made you like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say like maybe not try or, or not be focused on trying to get the A's and B's. Like you, you described it as like, you have a game and you're trying to win the game. And it seems like that you were able to take that mentality to school the second time around. And, and you clearly just didn't the first time around. Um, right. do you think it was like a lack of being interested. Do you think it was trying to be cool? Do you think it was, um, like your friends just weren't into it or like your social group or I don't know. I'm trying to try to understand. I mean, I got a young child, so I'm trying to understand yeah. the differences that cause someone to be like a little bit more focused in school versus one that doesn't. And, you know, I'm athletes are, you know, I know a lot of athletes that are basically focused just enough in school in order to get the grades they need to get to, to play ball. Right. But, um, but I think right. most athletes would really benefit from trying a little bit harder because unless if they're getting a full scholarship that the academics, you know, make a huge difference. It opens up a lot of doors. Um, in all, all right. in all regards. So, uh, I don't know what was, what, what do you think was holding you back? Why, why don't you think you, you gave the effort or the, the focus or the, the desire to win towards academics when you were in junior high and high school? You know, 
it, it all started when I was young in, in elementary. I was I was I was a resource kid, meaning that there was typically an hour or two hours out of I mean every I don't know maybe when I was second grade all the way up to to junior high. Um, I would have to leave for about an hour to two hours to go into another small room with other kids that had some learning disabilities. And um, and it'd be, I don't know if I really had a learning disability. I think I had more of a, a confidence issue. Um, but even though I was the tallest kid in my class all the time and I was, you know, outgoing and fun loving, but there was, um, I think when you start to grow up and you just, you're the kind of the special kid in a way when it comes to academics and that didn't really affect me as much growing up because I knew that I was a really good athlete. So when I go out and recess or go little league or youth football, I would blow it up. And so that kind of kept my confidence going. Um, but when I started to become more of a football player in my, in junior high, my dad, I think when you asked me the question, like realizing that I'm a resource kid and then I go, I'm getting better and better and better. And right before I'm going into high school, my dad asked me, he's like, so where do you want to go to college and play football? I'm like, USC baby that's where I want to go so and, and right above my my uh, desk here is a USC helmet right now um, and it was just a, a goal of mine but he goes if you want to go there you have to be top five percent of your class and when he said that I was like instantly like well I can't do that like there's I'm a resource kid and he and he back then my dad was so like talk about mental performance and sports psychology he was teaching stuff that I didn't even know like breathing visualization, right? Self-talk was huge for my dad, like language. If he heard us say stuff, he would correct us in the moment. And he was our coach in, in baseball and football. Um, he was our president of our Pop Warner League. So he was very involved. But I think when he asked me that question in junior high, that's when I started going, I'm just going to hope, which hope is not a strategy, but I'm going to hope that I that my, my athletics are good enough where a team will, will take a chance on me and kind of push the grades to the side. And that was just like, it's so limiting, right? But it is, it was part of my journey and I, and I, and I love it that I have it so I can teach people based off that. Yeah. That, um, it just makes me think that, that people are capable of what they think they're capable of. It's like, uh, if you think you can, you can, if you think you can't, you can't kind of expression. And totally. it sounds like you were like the victim of that is like, you thought you could be good at sports and then you were good at sports and you thought you couldn't be good at academics and then you weren't good at academics. And then you chat a mental mentality shift and now you're an author of a book and you know you run a successful business it's like like that was like probably you know i doubt that it was like the hip surgery that helped you to cross that line and like made you a lot smarter <laughs> all of a sudden it was just like that was always within you but um but like the gift of like belief um just wasn't in you at least in in that part of your life uh and and obviously it had a big impact on you, you know, one totally of the, one of the things i want to ask is um you're from california is that right yeah, San Francisco. So you're from San Francisco. You're you're uh, a high school football player, and tell me like how did the recruiting process go for you? And maybe like for our audience's sake, give me a rough sense of like the the year, just because um, recruiting has probably changed quite a bit since you were going through it. For sure. You know, I was the second football player in the history of my high school that um, not only starting, but I was uh, the second sophomore being brought up to varsity. And, uh, and I started. And um, so the moment that happened, I, I remember this and I, I kept all my letters just because it was part of my journey. Uh, but my first letter was from U University of Cal, uh, Cal Berkeley. And man, from that moment on, I started getting these letters. They were, they became like addictive because I was getting like my junior year, like I had a really good junior year. I was getting letters like every other day. And I was getting them sent to my school. So, again, people seeing uh, UCLA and BYU and Arkansas, uh, even Florida State, like they were seeing these like letters being like delivered to me in the middle of class. And that was motivation. Right. But then when you get that, like when you start and you're the first dude that in a while that's like getting all those accolades and getting all this attention, then your focus starts to be coming out on this outcome goal. It's scholarship. And I started to, even though I respected the process and, and loved going through the process, it got to my senior year where when I found out that there was scouts at the game, like as soon as like I told my dad, well, never tell me that there's a scout. I don't want to know that there's scouts at the game because my, you know, my focus goes straight to that and not what I need to be doing. 
And um, and I and I could see, and there was moments uh, Nate where I, I could see it on the film where I'm walking up to the line of scrimmage and I'm doing it differently to sh- to kind of show off, right? To look like I'm in command, right? Like I'm getting into my because I love Jim Kelly, he's my favorite quarterback. Like I wanted to walk like him, and if there's a scout there, I wanted them to look at that. Right in that moment, I just took myself out of focus, right? So um, I would say that. So it was it was a little bit. I put more pressure on myself my senior year, and uh, it didn't. Things didn't work out the way I wanted to do as far as D one. But uh, I was lucky that I had an awesome junior college in the in the neighborhood, if you will. And it was Chabot Junior College, and they just the year before I graduated, they went to the national championship game and lost. So I was walking in and filling in for a quarterback that was incredible, but walking into a just a high-powered program. Okay, so so you ended up going to junior college. Was um was grades a factor there, or was it just that you didn't get the scholarship that you were looking for? It was. I think it was. Well, grades were a little bit of factor, but it wasn't bad grades. But I think if I hadn't if I had really nice grades, it would have been a little bit different for me. Um, but when you're running the wing T offense and, and you're a, an option quarterback, which back then I'm, I'm six, three, almost 200 pounds. And I'm only throwing 13, 15 times a game. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get picked up, um, when you're, the production is not that, that high. Now I was very accurate. Um, I had a fair amount of touchdowns. I didn't have a lot of interceptions, but, um, but it was just hard to be seen when you're when you're going against somebody else. There's two other quarterbacks that I was competing against in my league, and they were throwing 22, 33 times a game. Did, did you so resent, they were getting looks? Did you resent being at a school where you felt like your talents weren't on display for the college coaches, and that that was limiting you? I'll tell you what. My senior, my sophomore year, my dad saw me, and he's like, "Listen, you you have you're special. You have talent. You're gro- you're going to keep growing into this big quarterback now." are you sure you want to stay at California high school? And I'm like, yep, I want to make them good. Cause we, you know, we spent years not being a good program. And he goes, you have a chance to go to San Ramon Valley high, which is, was it in Danville, which is next to our, uh, our town. And then you can go to De La Salle the mighty De La Salle, or you can go to Monta Vista. And those three schools, if you went to any of those schools, like if you're, if you're, if you're good, you're going to get picked up. I mean, it was just, those were high powered programs. And so I, I kept on telling my dad, I'm like, Nope, I'm staying here. I want to be with my friends and I want to, I want to prove that I can change the culture. And so that moment, I, there's times where I go back and I'm like, what if, right? But okay. What if, I mean, it doesn't do anything, but things could have changed for me, but you know what? I truly believe that I stuck it out with, with the dudes with me. Uh, we changed it. We actually changed the culture from then on out. There was a couple of years that they were under 500, but now they're like they play De La Salle in the in the NC, NCS finals almost every year. So, I, so I feel good that I stuck it out. But it's personally, eh, you know, I can go back and say what if and I should have. But but if I did do it, I would I'd probably go to. I probably would have been to De La Salle or San Ramon High. Gotcha. And then yeah. you probably had a second recruiting experience then when, when your JUCO days were done, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to go somewhere as a junior, uh, to transfer to a four-year school. What was that like? So interestingly enough, my, my freshman year, I was battling out, uh, for the job. And, and this was with a quarterback that came from Florida, not Florida, University of Florida, but he was, um, he was all American actually. And all, he was all state, um, but he was about three or four years older than I was. So he, he played Juco in Florida and then ended up uh, taking a year off or so and then moved out to California. So, um, long story short, the offensive coordinator just liked the fact that he had more experience than I did and, and liked the way he, he threw the ball. And, um, you know, that first game and, and you'll read it in my book, I, I kind of capture that first college game in my book. And, uh, I ended up, um, coming in at halftime and just, man, tore it up. And, and there was some other dynamics that happened. It took a couple games before I actually was named the starter. But after I got started, the starting job, we won the following week. My defensive end, defensive end ends up uh, blocking my pass. And my hand bounced off his hand, and my hand went straight into his helmet. And I shattered my ring finger on my throwing hand. So, and the reason why I tell you the backstory of that, because 
I was like heading out to have a really good season and then it ends in the middle of the season. And so the cool thing about my coach, he believed in me. He's like, listen, get your finger healed up. And, um, I came back and he believed in me and I was a starting quarterback. So I only had like a year and a half of junior college football, but again, I'm running like, when I say wing tee, we're running the Delaware wing tee. Like it's like full on. And I loved it. It was a fun offense, you know, play action pass and, you know, three step, one step. It's just option. I loved it, but there's not a lot of D one schools that are running the wing tee. So that kind of went against me. Um, but I, to me, I had a lot of uh, Division two, Division three, a few uh, NAIA schools, and it got down to like, what was it, Morningside University in Glenville State in I think West Virginia. Uh, one of them wanted to give me a full ride, wanted to give me a partial, but it was like, I, I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to go to those places. They didn't, they didn't really like resonate with me, and and the program didn't. So. I found myself not having a program, like literally going into the, the next summer, there was no program. And I'm like, I guess I'm done with football. And then I went to my high school and to, just to check out my football team and just watch them practice in the summer. And my coach looked at me and he goes, why aren't you playing football? And I'm like, well, no one picked me up. No one gave me a scholarship that I really liked. And he goes, if you played, if I can call right now and you go to Sonoma State, would you go? And I'm like, sure. And it was a D2 school, you know, no scholarship, but, and it was literally Two days later, he calls me up and he says, can you get there tomorrow? So I'm like, sure. So I had six weeks to get ready for the first game. And it was the West Coast offense, which was tough for me to learn in a short amount of time. Uh, so that was a that was an interesting experience because I felt so good in junior college, even though I played a year and a half. But I mean, I, we, things we did as a team and personally was just incredible. And then I find myself not playing and it was kind of a weird feeling, but then, you know, I took what was available and, and tried did my best with it. Yeah. So then, um, that's when you get hurt and, and you end up, you know, like kind of on the shelf and go down like the, the path of being someone that's like living without football for a little while. And, and then, uh, you know, to bring you back, you'd mentioned that your wife, um, asked you to go snowboarding one day, which I find to be both like really interesting and also kind of hilarious that that is like the thing that like knocks you out of your your like malaise or whatever um, do you think that like something had turned in you where you were just more open to hearing something like that and that's why it was the thing that switched or do you think that like just no one no one was pushing you to do anything and then when someone finally did it just that's all it was going to take at any point or, or were you just more ready for it no, I, I, I agree with you. I think no one really stepped up and rattled my cage. No one called me accountable because they, they saw the pain. Like I, I, I had so many people come up to me and say, you know, how painful it is to watch you walk. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you should feel the pain. And, and I'll tell you what, like when you're in sales, which is a very image based, you know, industry or, or role, when you're going to meet somebody for the first time, no matter how good you look, your hair's done, your ties, you know, you have a nice tie and suit and all that. When you're walking like the ogre from, from Notre Dame, you know, the, your first impression is like, whoa, who, who's this dude? You know, and I, I instantly get feel that energy and instantly would make up like, oh, they think I'm damaged. And so I'd have to overcompensate with my personality. And um, so, so I had to deal with a lot of that. But I think it was um, literally my wife. She just... She shook me and that's what it took. And man, and I, and I tell the story all the time, man. And my wife is like, she's a stud. Like she's like, she works her butt off to, to have the body she does and take care of her body. Recovery is huge for her. And so I, I just, I don't know, when someone is so dedicated for their own body and then they check you, you know, she, I used her as an inspiration, motivation and was like, and plus I'm like, I'm, I'm her husband. Like I, I got to show up, you know, and I don't want to show down. I want to show up. So, so yeah, got to get shaken up sometimes. So like, uh, it doesn't surprise me then with like, it seems like you've had a lifelong battle with, uh, mental performance in a lot of ways. It seemed like that, uh, that you were always lim the limiting thing on your success has always been like the, the mentality. And, um, so it doesn't surprise me that one day you wake up, you recognize that, and then you have an approach that makes you, um, 
you know, less susceptible to all the problems that had plagued you, you know, in various forms throughout your entire life. And then, and then you're getting, and then as soon as you recognize that, I imagine that's when the light switch turns on and you say, there's got to be a million other people out there walking around just like me with this mental block. And then you say, I got to help them. Is that, is that basically right? Pretty much. It, it pretty much. And it's, it's so funny. Like, um, absolutely. But I, when I went through this whole scenario, I was like, you know what? I have a story here and I want to share it. And I like, it's so funny. I ask people, I'm like, Hey, what do you think about me? Like, like writing a book about this or just kind of be doing keynote speaking on, on this topic. And people are like, no, dude, don't do that. Don't do that. Hey, what do you think about me writing a book about the next one up mindset? Ah, no, 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 don't do that. Hey, what do you think about me? Like changing my occupation, like at the age of 40, now nah, you probably don't want to do that. Like so many people are telling me, and then I got to a point where I'm like, man, my negative self-talk is not only I'm allowing these people, I'm in the effect of all these people, but I'm letting these people live my life. Like, screw that, man. Like, uh, so it was so funny. Like a lot of people that were very important people were telling me these things, you know, and I trust them. But now I was like, no, man, start to try. I need to trust myself. And all the things that people are telling me not to do and I did it, man, my life has been flourishing. So I've been, it's kind of been a nice thing that, you know, when we talk about negative self-talk, man, that was, that was my life for two decades. And I'll tell you what. I lost my confidence as a public speaker and I'll tell you what I do now every time I speak. Like even when I'm before I even got on this show with you, I say three things all the time. I say they want to hear me, right? I get to do this and tap into your joy. And those three things, I'm I'm controlling the controls, I'm focusing on all positive stuff and I'm, there's nothing I'm not allowing any kind of self-doubt or nerves nothing. I'm like I'm jacked and I'm like locked in. So I've had to learn that kind of self-talk and those and develop those mantras, you know, over time, but due to the last couple of decades. So there's definitely opportunity out of a crisis for sure. See, I have the opposite problem. I'm, I'm delusional. I think everyone wants to hear me always that, uh, <laughs> that nothing could stop me. And, uh, I think I, I run face first into a lot of things as a result. Yeah. So, um, so it, it could go the other way too, but, um, yeah, so so I guess like writing a book just seems like such a daunting task. Um, how do you like pick up the pen for the first time or turn on the computer for the first time and say, I am going to start writing words? Like, I feel like that that has got to be the hardest part is like literally like starting a book with nothing on the piece of paper. So like, how do you make that transition? Um, what motivated you? You know, it's it's a great question because I had so much like there's so much thought, so much like data and knowledge in my head that... Like I wanted to get it all out and throw it up on the paper or papers. And it, that was struggle because I'm like, no, it was about being perfect. Right. So I'm like, I've never, I've never written a book. And so like, how do I know what's perfect? Just after a while, I think the first couple months, it was just, it, it was like kind of a slow process for me just to go, okay, this is going to be daunting. Embrace, embrace the journey, embrace the process and just go, just, just go, just let it all out. It's not going to be perfect. Someone else is going to come up on top over me and look at this and they're going to make it better and guide me. So, which I did, I had a guy that helped me, which was, was awesome. But to, to tell you the truth, the book took a couple of years, but I was writing it and taking notes for about four or five years. And when I went to, to get my master's in sports psychology, um, instead of doing a thesis, they said, um, you can do a thesis or a special project. So I'm like, what's a special project? And they're like, it could be anything. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I can start writing my book. Like, right. So then I talked to my professor and he goes, I think, you know, if you're going to really challenge yourself to write a book in three or four months, because that's, that's all we had when we made the decision. Um, I think you're going to stress yourself out. And he goes, but I want you to keep writing that book though. Keep writing it, but think of something else. And I was like, okay. So then I thought of the podcast. So my podcast came out of my special project for my, my grad program, but it was at that moment when I started to write the book and it was hard at first, but then when you start getting your juices going and you start to allow yourself to be open to just kind of researching the idea and other subjects of, of people who got prepared for the moment and people who didn't, um, was kind of a, was a fun journey for me. Yeah. So what does uh, next one up mean? Like what, what, where's that coming from? Well, it comes from the next man up, right? So when you think of, uh, and again, I, I've pulled tons, 
tons of different stories and subjects throughout the the history of sports in all sports of people that that were either second string or sitting on the bench or just out of nowhere their their number was called and they stepped up and they and they relished in the moment. And when you think of guys like Nick Nick Foles, I mean, look at him. He was the man, not the man, and then now he's the man. But truly, when he came in the year that Carson Wentz went down, he came in towards the end of that year, and he was sitting on the bench for most of the year. Not only does he take him to the Super Bowl, but he ends up getting an MVP, and then he gets the richest backup quarterback contract, $20 million to sit on the bench the following year, and he almost did it again. So when you look at people like that, um, I was so interested in athletes that – what do they do in the dark? What are they doing at practice? What are they doing in the film room to get ready for that moment? Look at Tua when he was a true freshman at Alabama. Like, how does anybody as a true freshman never play a snap all season long? And then they get put in the biggest game of their lives at halftime when they're down three or four touchdowns and comes back and wins it. I don't know about you. I mean, I understand that he's talented, but mentally there's something that he was doing. So that 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 actually was the reason why I wrote the book because I was so interested in it. And, you know, as a coach and as an athlete and a professional in the workplace, I just saw so many people not get prepared for the moment. Right. I mean, I saw this in, in corporate America so many times where someone's sitting in their office and someone like out of nowhere, their boss comes up to him and says, Hey, the area VP is in town today and wants to talk to you. And I've seen so many, they freak out. Like, why do they want to talk to me? Did I do something wrong? Are my, are my numbers down? And they start freaking out instead of going right on. I get to talk to the AV, the area vice president and get excited for that. And if there's something wrong, it's okay, man, get the feedback from it, right? So, but we get plugged into the emotional side. And I think when our number's called and we're not ready and prepared, I think that's where damage can happen. And, and that's why I always say, you know, preparation is your separation. So the more you're prepared for that moment, I mean, you're going to thrive. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to remember that uh, Tom Brady was the next man up. He was. I think the Patriots weren't even very good, and right. uh, and they were like maybe a few games into the year, and they had a quarterback that had been a great quarterback in the NFL for a long time, Drew Bledsoe, and he went down with an injury. And I'm pretty sure everyone at that moment said they're done. This team is done. I'm pretty sure that also the year before Kurt Warner was the same story where like their starting quarterback went down in preseason and like literally they didn't have a single quarterback on the on the roster that had ever taken a snap in the NFL. And I think that they had like not won a game or maybe only won one game the year before. And uh, in both cases, like they both won Super Bowls and in Tom Brady's case, you know, probably like the greatest quarterback in, in NFL history. Um, right. And so... And and that expression, next man up, um, I've been on coaching staffs and, and with football teams where like literally every single day, the head coach would harp on the idea of the next man up and that um, it's the job of the person that's backing someone else up to be as good or better than them in the case that they have the opportunity. And uh, that's what like their job is. And, and I think that, that like you said, that um, probably almost anyone that is like seeking the help and or maybe that's not true, but like I would say a lot of people that are seeking the help of a mental performance coach or reading like a book to, to help them to up their game are probably the people that could be the next man up. They're not, they're not already in the spot of being the man. And, uh, and so understanding the, the best mentality to be in that position to ultimately achieve all the things that you're looking for is, is the right mentality. So that makes total sense to me. Totally. I, to be honest with you, I, I think being the backup in any sport, in a team sport, is probably one of the hardest things, the hardest role, but the most crucial role in the team. We all need first stringers for sure. But guess what? What if you're that person that is backing up Tom Brady, that's backing up Le'Veon Bell, right? If if the game is, if you're winning and Le'Veon Bell is, he's ripping off you know 200 yards and he ends up getting hurt and he's out for the next couple of games, you have to jump into the rhythm of the game, the rhythm of the season. And I always call it, I always say like the image of it, it's like jumping into a car going 70 miles an hour, jump through the window of it. I mean, if you're not prepared to see yourself being successful, getting into your breath, having good self-talk, you might, you might not be ready for that moment because it's so hard to jump into the rhythm of that game or the season if someone goes down. Yeah. So you've touched on like a couple of things, like very briefly, but uh, if you're a high school athlete, and or a college athlete 
and you're trying to find a way to up your game to be a little bit better, um, I'm sure all these things can be much more beneficial at a very individual level. But what are some good general tips and advice that you think a vast majority of, of athletes are just not not doing right that could be simple changes that can make a big impact? You know, there's there's one that comes to mind just because it's the basis of all mental skills training. It's the basis of mindfulness training, and that's your breath. Like, I, there are so many people that just don't have a relationship with their breath. And and it's so easy for me to tell you right now, like, hey, you, you got to have a relationship with your breath because you and I right now are breathing, but we're not consciously breathing. We're not dropping into our chaotic lives or the moment that's really chaotic on the field and really dropping in, like getting right now in the here and now. Now, how do you do that? If, you know, to, to for your listeners, start literally three to five to seven times a day, drop in for three to five seconds. That's it. Like stop everything, take a couple of deep breaths and then let it go and keep doing that throughout the day. Because when you, when it's third down and two, or when your coach is yelling at you because you just had a mistake or you threw a pick six, whatever it is, you've got to get back into the here and now. If you want to get refocused and you want to let go of that emotional bag of shit that happens a lot when people just, they, they don't know how to deal with mistakes or failures. Uh, you got to start with your breath. And I think other things when you accomplish or accompany a, a breath, it's with visualization and positive self-talk. Those three things are within your control. And if you can actually start focusing on it at a young age, you're, you're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I always use the expression, um, it's probably not as good as, as focus on your breath, but uh, to stop the slide, right? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. like um, I, I always try to create like there's like this imagery that um that I always think of as someone that's like trying to like hike up a slippery or muddy hill, right? And um and it can often feel like that when things aren't going your way on the ga- in the game and uh, you know something like one thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and all of a sudden it feels like you're just like going down the hill and there's no way to stop it. And like the the mental imagery that I always think of is like you have to like plant your foot in the ground. You have to like drive it in there and you have to stop the slide. And then you can like, you know, focus back on hiking back up and, and, um, probably the focusing on your breath is like the literal way to accomplish that in some ways. Uh, I've never heard a coaching staff or a coach or a player think of it in those terms. Um, if you have any experience with working with athletes that, that literally use that technique and, and any stories that you think might be, you know, interesting to our audience about, about that. Tons. You know, when you think about, um, sports in general the hardest thing i think the hardest thing for an athlete is when when your game is going the other way when you're making a lot of mistakes you feel like a failure all these things that are happening i call it the shift how do you shift from all these mistakes into your most confident self in the moment that's the hardest thing especially when there's all this pressure and you have scouts and your girlfriend and your parents and the faculty and your teammates, all this stuff is like adding up and like you're not doing well. So how do you actually get back into your confidence, right? So there's a few things. I have I have a process called BVT and I talked about it just a little bit ago. And it's breathe, visualize, and talk, self-talk. Talk yourself back into the situation. So that's BVT. Um, also, when we talk about confidence, right? When we make that shift, we need to – it's going to be really hard in the moment when you're like dealing with all this pressure – well, how do we get back into our confidence? A lot of us think that confidence is a, is a feeling. And I'm not going to deny that. Like we all, you know, we know what it's like to feel confident, but how do you get to that point to feel confident? Well, it's called acting. You got to act into your confidence. So how do you act? Well, get into your breath. That's one action. The other action is body language. Throw your shoulders back, put your head up high, right? And then another action is self-talk. Tell yourself, like literally get some motivational either motivational or instructional self-talk to get you back into the moment. Guess what, dude? You're right there. You are in the moment in control. You got back into control. And there's another there's another uh, uh, mindset that I teach. It's called win. I think you're familiar with what's important now. So that's another thing that can get you back into your most confident self when things are going the other way. If you can tell yourself when you're feeling chaotic and emotional what's important now and you act on it, that's winning. It's yeah, so like all these techniques, they, they all make sense to me. They, they seem like, 
no-brainers as like simple ads to someone's life in order to be more successful and be more focused and and you know overcome mental blocks that that we talked about like the kind of things that plagued you for a long time um is there any like scientific study research evidence that that like can support some of these things or or can call out the ones that might seem like you know the ones that maybe you aren't mentioning that might be bullshit that like really don't have any real basis to them are there right. like you know like a lot of the stuff i think to to some athletes and some like hard-nosed football types like sounds a little woo woo you know um yeah. and like i i don't uh i don't self-talk i just rub dirt on it kind of mentality and totally. so like i don't know to in order to put a little confidence behind some of these things do you, are you familiar with anyone that does research on this kind of stuff Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, especially the three things that I'm focused on is breath, visualization, and self-talk. There's so much research, um, so much research on breath, on on how it actually, if you get into your breath, how you can slow your respiratory system, you can slow down the blood flow. You can, when you do that, right, when you get into your breath, and there's so much research on it, what I always say is that when you get into your breath, you have your breath, that means you have your mind. And when you have your mind, you have your body. And if you can get into that quick, get in your breath, boom, you get your mind, your body real quick. There's all science on how that actually works, that whole process, because your breath, like literally when you're, when you do a deep breath, guess what happens just now? There's a part of my brain that just lit up. Like they put it under an x-ray and they show the, like how much energy that the breath does, especially with the brain. Right. So to give you another, uh, example of research when you think of visualization they have proved that your brain this is why visualization is so powerful it's proven that your brain doesn't know the difference from a physical rep from a mental rep so if you're a second stringer and you're only getting a few different a few different reps throughout throughout the practice it is your it is your job to learn how to visualize because if you're only getting 10 shots in practice right you can literally, you can really increase your shots in your head by 30 shots, 50 shots if you really want to do. Because again, your brain doesn't know the difference. Like, how awesome is that? Like, I could literally get more reps in by just dropping into my mind and controlling that image. So there's there's research on that for sure that that's proven um, to build confidence in the body and proven that you can get into zone a little bit quicker due to visualization. Yeah, and some real practical advice for athletes that are, especially football players that are watching uh, film. Um, I think a lot of athletes, when they watch film, are watching it like they would watch on the TV. You know, they're watching a game. But like, literally look at the thing that you're supposed to be looking at when you're on the field, right? So if you're a corner, if you're supposed to be looking at the wide receiver, look at the wide receiver. If you're a guard and you're supposed to be looking at the defensive tackle and reading you know whether or not he you know moves across your face and then like that means you get your eyes up to the linebacker or whatever it is put yourself in the position of being running one of your plays and and look at the thing that you're supposed to look at because that reaction to it um and and focus yourself to like work through your progression of your reaction to it i'm sure this is the type of thing a quarterback almost probably always does when they're watching film but i doubt i doubt a lot of other athletes are and uh when you do you prepare yourself much better for the game. You're much more likely to react the way that, that you want to and your coaches want you to. For sure. You know, I, I think also when you're looking at film, there's so many things you can get from film. Um, if you're going to be playing against a team, whether if it's at home or in their stadium, and you've played there before or you have a chance just to look on film, what that environment looks like. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to recreate what the real life image in your mind enough times you're going to do, you know, to visualize it so that when you're actually in that environment and you're actually doing the things that you've seen your your mind you know, allowed you to, to see, your body just reacts. It's called training the unconscious mind. So not only do you not want to focus on what you look like and how your body's going to move, but you have to visualize yourself in the environment because your body is actually literally – is stimulated all your five senses when you're playing football, your, your vision, your taste, your smell, right? Your, your touch, your hearing, all that's being activated. Now, typically we're just focusing on our vision and our touch and maybe auditory, your ears, probably all three of them. But that's what you want to do is you want to recreate that whole, that whole scene in your mind. And the more you can do that, your body's going to feel more comfortable when it's in that environment. Well, Grant, that's, that's such good advice. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to me and, and uh, my audience. And 
really appreciate it. Uh, I want to give give the people in our audience a chance to learn more about you and and find out about your book. So where should they go to to get all that information? Absolutely. Thank you so much. You can go to Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. You can also visit my site, GameFacePerformance.com, and, and buy my book there. If you want to follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, my handle is GFP Mindset. Uh, LinkedIn, you can find me as Grant Parr. And Facebook, you can find me as Grant Parr and Game Face Performance. And if you're interested, uh, check out my podcast. You can check it out, uh, 90% Mental, on pretty much any podcast platform out there. All right, great, uh, Grant. That's that's amazing. Can't wait to uh, see all the fun things and, and interesting content that you create here on out. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right, bye, Grant. Wow, what a powerful story to go from kind of the depths of not being sure if you'll be able to walk again to overcoming adversity and using just turning your mental approach around in a way that allows you to just do the thing that you weren't thinking that you were capable of before and opening new doors and going from that to getting a degree in in sports psychology and writing a book and starting a podcast and becoming a keynote speaker. I mean, Grant has come a long way from where he was and um, I think it's inspirational. So thank you, Grant, for coming on and sharing that with our audience. And before we go, I want to remind our athletes to sign up for a profile if you haven't already at the Verified Athletics watch list and also to fill out the college selector. It is a free tool that helps you to identify the right schools for you to be looking at in the recruiting process. Until next time, take care, guys. Bye.